Let's pray together. Dear God, you say, if anyone lacks wisdom, let them ask you who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given. Let them ask in faith with no doubting. For every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from you, the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And this morning, we come to you, God, and we ask, pour out your wisdom on us. You're the one who gives generously. You're the one who does not change. You are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. You are eternally wise and good. So help us now to know your ways, God, to teach us your paths, Lead us in your truth and teach us, for you are the God of our salvation and we want to wait upon you. Humble our minds, humble our souls, and we ask all of this to you, God the Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. The first five verses of the book of Acts, they're, they're really an orienting section to begin the book of Acts, and they're orienting us to what's to come in the following chapters as we study through this great book. And it begins, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. This is the word of God. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. The author of Acts is a man named Luke. Luke was a doctor. He was a physician. He was also well-traveled. We know that Luke actually accompanied the apostle Paul in many of Paul's missionary journeys throughout the Mediterranean world. This is what we know of Luke. Luke, uh, if you read through Acts, and it's going to become pretty clear, Luke was very well-educated. Obviously very well traveled. He was familiar with the places that he accompanied Paul on his journeys. And he was familiar with both Greco-Roman society, education, arts, as well as Jewish culture. And in this introduction, you realize pretty quickly that Luke, in writing this book, the book of Acts, he's not writing something that's standalone. But in fact, Acts is part of a much larger story and you see that in verse 1, right out the gate. Notice what he says. In the first book, O Theophilus, in the first book, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Acts, this book, is book 2, written by Luke to Theophilus. But before Acts, there was another book, the Gospel of Luke. And that book begins almost identically to the way that Acts does with another introduction to Theophilus. If you look back at Luke chapter 1, it begins, Luke writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, 
to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. The Gospel according to Luke is book one. Acts is book two, both written by Luke, both written to Theophilus. And Luke is clear on this point. I want to highlight this because it's foundational for our study in Acts. Luke is clear on this point that both of these books, Luke and Acts, were written for a specific reason. Luke has a specific target that he wants to aim toward in his writing Theophilus, and you saw it in verse 3. Notice again what he says. It seemed good to me also, Theophilus, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, that you may have certainty. Certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Theophilus, he was most likely a member of the intelligent middle class in Rome. That's what most scholars think. We don't know a whole lot about Theophilus, but that's probably true. And Luke writes these two books. Luke and Acts, for this specific reason, Theophilus, I want you to have certainty about the things that you've been taught. Your faith in Jesus your trust in him, your worship of Jesus as Lord and King, your belief in the resurrection from the dead, your belief in Jesus' sacrificial death for your personal sins committed against a holy God, your hope in Jesus' kingdom, your understanding of the scriptures, the powerful way at which he's in work in your life today and throughout the world today, those things are not myth. Theophilus, you're educated, you're familiar with Greco-Roman writing. You know what myth is because your entire culture is predicated on certain myths. Roman culture was predicated on the myth of Jupiter. Jupiter was considered god of gods. He was the god of sky and thunder. He could even turn into an eagle. How cool is that? There was the myth also of Neptune. Neptune was the god of the sea carries a trident around. He causes swells and storms to come up on fishermen and seamen. He, he directs and commands water creatures to do his will. Theophilus, that's myth. Cleverly devised stories and religious sentimentality, you know, whether they're true or not, that's not really germane, right? You like Neptune, I like Jupiter, they like Jupiter, he and she, they like Mars. What you've been taught about Jesus, though, is not that. That's myth. Jesus is certainty. Big distinction. I'm writing that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. And as you reflect on Western culture now, in the 21st century, you think of the United States of America. Take our present context I really can't think of anything that we need more than that level of certainty. That's the same target for us. Because when it comes to Jesus, many of us, we know the basics of what it means to follow Jesus. We've been instructed in these things. We've been taught these things. But in our hearts, we lack certainty. Certainty about who Jesus is and what he came to do in his kingdom, which will extend over all creation. We say things like, yeah, Jesus is, yeah, he's good for me, but not necessarily for you. 
Jesus is not a God of certainty. No, he's good for me. I personally need Jesus. He's done great things for me. It works for me. But you have meditation. You have Allah. You have, you know, yoga. You have peace by hiking in the mountains. You have inner tranquility by reading a good book and drinking coffee. You live in the awe of the cosmos. I have Jesus. That works for me. But that can work for you. That's fine. After all, who can really know? We can't be certain about these things. As long as you're a good person and do good and you're sincere in your belief, all is going to be all right in the end. That lack of certainty that we carry toward Jesus, it's actually borne out statistically as well. Ligonier Ministries, they're a Christian ministry. They post a data set every year and they publish it under the name The State of Theology. And they found in 2002, their most recent study, 53% of Americans agreed with the following statement, quote, the stories of the Bible, meaning stories about Jesus, the stories of the Bible, like all sacred writings, contain helpful accounts of ancient myths, but are not actually true. It's 53% of Americans believe in that sentiment. Likewise, 45% of Christians believed in the following statement and agreed with the following statement, quote, religion, including Christianity, is a matter of personal opinion. It's not about objective truth. In other words, it's not about certainty. It's about religious sentimentality and sincerity. Not according to Luke. Not according to Luke. Quite the contrary. Luke says, the whole reason I'm writing you, Theophilus, this letter, the book two of Acts, just like book one, the reason I'm writing these to you, Theophilus, is that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught about Jesus. Jesus is not one option among many Theophilus. He's not in the realm of helpful ancient myth or spiritual personal opinion. Jesus is in the realm of certainty. Do you see that? And in this intro to book two, the book of Acts, in order to instill that level of certainty in Theophilus. Luke begins his introduction by saying, Theophilus, look back. First thing, look back at everything Jesus did in book one. He says it in verse one. He says, look back, Theophilus, in the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. That's what my gospel is. Book one, was about Jesus from the time when Jesus' birth was announced by God to Mary, to Joseph, up until that ministry continued, verse 2, until the day when he was taken up. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days in speaking about the kingdom of God. Book one was written so that you would look back and it would instill in you, Theophilus, certainty about what Jesus regularly taught. And what did Jesus teach about most? Well, you see it in verse three. It was the same thing that he taught his apostles between his resurrection 
and his ascension, he taught them about the kingdom of God. You see that in verse 3. And now understand this. Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God, but when you look at the Bible, the whole Bible, in its entirety, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, is a book about a kingdom. The whole Bible is one large story about a kingdom. The first kingdom that you see in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, is the kingdom of man. God creates Adam and Eve, and he crowns Adam with dominion over all of creation. That word dominion is a royal term. It's a term of kings and queens. And what God instructed Adam to do as king of creation is to rule over all creation under God. That was his mandate. To rule on earth as God rules in heaven. But then, after Genesis 1 and 2, you get Genesis 3. Adam goes into rebellion. Satan, who's disguised as a serpent, tempts Adam to rule. Not as king over creation and under God. But instead, he tempts Adam to rule as king over creation apart from God. Stuff God into the closet right back here. To rule as if God's kingdom was irrelevant on earth as it is in heaven. To rule as if God himself was just a myth or matter of personal opinion. Yeah, God said do it this way. But that's good for some people. It's not good for you, Adam. And the result of that rebellion, the result, the record that ensued is overwhelming. It's almost hard to read. As you look at Genesis 1 and 2, God's good creation, his good kingdom, the kingdom of man... Because from Genesis 3, after the rebellion onward, every chapter is flooded with sin, darkness, and death. And you see the rebellion play out. Right after Genesis 3. You can, you can open to Genesis 3 and just start flipping through chapters. Genesis 4, you see the first murder committed by humankind. Where Cain, in cold blood, murders his, son, or his brother Abel. In Genesis chapter 5, creation is overrun by sexual orgies, injustice, there's more murder. By Genesis 6, God's looking down at creation, and he's so grieved at the rebellion that's taken place and the darkness that's come over his creation, he destroys all of humanity except for one family with a cataclysmic flood. And then that family that... God saved out of this flood of judgment doesn't prove to be much better. Out of that family comes incest and drunkenness. By Genesis chapter 11, the whole pattern of the kingdom of man is uh, followed again. And that pattern is humanity makes a kingdom wholly devoted, called the city of Babel, wholly devoted to themselves instead of God. And then the worst of all tragedies, the worst of all tragedies, happens in Genesis chapter 13. A husband, for the very first time, forgot to put the toilet seat down. <laughs> and anarchy ensued. Just making sure you're paying attention. I'm sure that happened actually a lot earlier. <laughs> Darkness, sin, by Genesis 14 plagues humanity so that raids happen on innocent lands, kidnapping, theft. By Genesis 19, you have rape and incest and perverted sexuality. They're widespread throughout the ancient Near East. And we're not even halfway through the first book of the Bible. Genesis 19. Overwhelmed kingdom of man, overrun with sin, darkness, 
and death. And it's the same kingdom that continues to propagate itself and pattern itself again and again, even in the United States in 2023. Think about this. By virtue of living in the United States in the 21st century, 2023, we live in the wealthiest era in human history. We live with the greatest access to health care our world has ever known. We live, in the Western world at least, with the lowest infant mortality rate that's ever been recorded in history. We have more creaturely comforts than we know what to do with. And yet, despite all of that progress in the kingdom of man, despite all those gains, we still cannot seem to find a way to stem the overwhelming flood of rebellion, sin, darkness, and death. That's why in 2022, just last year, more than one in six American adults had a major depressive episode. If that was taken in 2021, I would have been in that same statistic. It's why Harvard reports that while cardiovascular disease, stroke, diabetes, deaths reported in those instances are decreasing, but deaths of despair, those caused by suicide, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, are on the rise. They're actually spiking post-2020. Since 1999, we've had 19 mass school shootings in the United States with double-digit fatalities or major injuries. Washington Post recently ran an article where they said Gen Z, the generation now aged really from 11 to 26, some of our sons and daughters, they said we can categorize this almost definitively as the loneliest generation in history. Since 1973, more than 63 million abortions have occurred in the United States of America. 63 million million children have been victimized by abortion, but now experts tell us this. We can be encouraged because last year it was the lowest number ever. There were only 620,000 abortions in the United States, so we're making progress. And friends, you can, you can wrap it in all the sophisticated academic language of postmodern philosophy and call it reproductive rights, but at the end of the day, abortion is murder. It's death at the hands of an innocent person at the hands of another, and it's just another blot on the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of man, and the kingdom of sin. God's good creation crowned with glory overseen by Adam has been plunged into rebellion. And that's the reason Jesus spent his last days with the apostles. Acts chapter 1, verse 3, reminding them of the certainty of the kingdom of God. He wanted his apostles, his followers to know because of his coming, because of Jesus, the kingdom of man is not the only kingdom and Adam is not the only king. Immediately following Adam's rebellion, God made this promise. One day he would send a son of Adam who would also be the son of God who would crush the power of Satan. He would crush the serpent's head. He would destroy the kingdom of man and he would reign. This new king would reign eternally as a new eternal king 
filling his kingdom with people through his forgiveness of sins. A kingdom where sin and darkness would be abolished and forgiveness and righteousness would reign. A kingdom where death would be destroyed and people would live eternally with God. That was his promise. This king promised by God, finally would make God's kingdom come and God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He would succeed everywhere that Adam failed. That's why, looking back, Jesus says in his final days, he wanted his apostles to be certain. And the apostles wanted Luke to be certain. And now Luke wants Theophilus to be certain that Jesus, the Galilean itinerant preacher, from the backwoods of Nazareth, he's the king of the kingdom of God. He is the king, Theophilus, and it's not a cleverly devised myth. No, it's in the realm of certainty. He is that king. But I can guarantee this. Even though Theophilus is saying, or Luke is saying to Theophilus, this is a certainty. I can guarantee you. Theophilus knew that intellectually, but feeling-wise, he, he felt the complete opposite. This level of certainty was something that he wrestled with because it's almost certain that skeptics and scoffers and antagonists tried to persuade Theophilus, saying, You're, that, that, that Christianity stuff, it's so ridiculous. It, it's so out in left field. We actually know that this happened because there are authors. There's one author, his name is Celsus. He was a philosopher in the early 2nd century, only a few decades after Luke was writing his gospel and his uh, book of Acts. Celsus, writing about Christianity, said, quote, The Christian movement is a movement of ignorant, unintelligent, uninstructed, and foolish persons. Try not to blush when we read this, by the way. They think that it's people like this that are worthy of their God and his kingdom. Their whole focus of the movement is to gain over the silly, the mean, the stupid, the women, and the children. You believe that stuff, Theophilus? That, that stuff that women make up. That stuff that children believe. Myths and fairy tales. There's also, we know, based on archaeological evidence, there's this uh, Roman tomb. It was, it was a tomb that probably was used for a high-ranking Roman official. But on the side of the tomb, there's this inscription and picture. And it's a picture of a man being crucified, which was shameful enough. But this man being crucified was a depiction of Jesus with a horse's head adding shame upon shame, insult upon injury. And next to the crucifix, what stands out is there's a, a man genuflecting, bowing down before this cross, and an inscription that reads, Alexaminos worships his God, tongue-in-cheek. That's Christianity. It's a myth, a group of uneducated and ignorant people worshiping a shameful, crucified man. And that's scoffing the cynicism and the naysaying. It continues on for 2,000 years. It continues today. There's one author, his name's uh, Yuval Harari. He's a professor and a historian. He wrote in a recent TED Talk, quote, a cursory look at the history reveals that propaganda and disinformation are nothing new. Humans have the unique ability to create and spread fictions. Centuries ago, millions of Christians locked themselves inside a self-reinforcing mythological bubble, never daring to question the factual veracity of the Bible. Yet billions of people have believed in these stories for thousands of years. And he closes, again, try not to blush, some fake news lasts forever. 
And here's Luke writing to Theophilus in the context of mockery and ridicule, scoffing and skepticism in the midst of people saying it's just an ignorant religion that worships a crucified Jewish carpenter. It's a movement of unintelligent and uninstructed children. It's nothing more than cleverly devised myth. And here's Luke reminding Theophilus, Theophilus, look back. Remember. Remember everything Jesus did in book one. Look back and remember what he did. Yeah, was Jesus crucified? Yes, of course he was. Luke actually puts that fact front and center in the book of Acts. He says, yes, Jesus suffered. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, buried. He descended into the agony of death. But don't forget, Theophilus, it is King Jesus and his suffering that brings humankind out of the kingdom of man into the kingdom of God. Don't forget it. Don't forget that. Jesus, by his crucifixion, brought the kingdom of God and his marvelous light in to the kingdom of darkness. That's why worshiping Jesus seems so foolish to the world, because the scoffing world doesn't see the crucifixion as anything noble. They just see senseless suffering. They see the cross. They see the shameful Jewish itinerant preacher being crucified by the Roman Empire alongside a countless stream of others who have gone at the same fashion. But remember, Theophilus, look back. You remember what the Apostle Paul said? Remember, the Apostle Paul wrote to Luke The Apostle Paul traveled with Luke. They were close friends. And the Apostle Paul said, remember this. There's a reason people scoff. There's a reason that the people of the world think it's foolish. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the cross, it's foolish to people. They see senseless suffering, but you know better, Theophilus. Look back. In the cross, Jesus was suffering for all of those trapped in the kingdom of man and the kingdom of darkness on the cross. Jesus bore the righteous, holy wrath of God for human sin as their substitute so that we might enter the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God eternally. Can I get an amen? Amen. Don't forget that certainty. Look back and remember it. And as an exclamation point, Luke writes, King Jesus did not stay in the grave, Theophilus. Look back. Look back. Verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering. How? By many proofs, Luke says appearing to his apostles and many others, appearing to them during 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. This isn't fiction. It isn't myth. This is where writers and commentators like Harari betray themselves. Christians aren't locked inside a mythological bubble. No, Luke is writing about things to Theophilus that can be proved, that can be tested, that can be investigated, that can be studied, that that can be questioned. Jesus, do you realize this? He presented himself alive by many proofs. There are at least 
10 different appearances throughout the New Testament scriptures, 10 different recounted historical appearances of the resurrected Jesus after he was dead for three days and rose again. Number one, at the tomb on Sunday after his crucifixion. Number two, to Mary Magdalene at the tomb on the same day. Number three, Jesus appeared to two travelers who are walking away from Jerusalem onto the road to Emmaus on Easter morning. To Peter in Jerusalem, to the other ten apostles shortly after the two travelers on the road to Emmaus. Later with Thomas and all the other eleven apostles. To seven apostles fishing in Galilee. Later to all eleven again in Galilee. Then to five hundred people at one time. Five hundred people at one time. And then lastly to James the Lord's brother, and then, if you want to add in another one, 11, to Paul himself, Jesus appeared in his resurrected, ascended, and glorified body. Ten different appearances, maybe 11, on ten different occasions that witnesses saw, they touched, they ate with, they spoke with and interacted with the crucified Jesus of Nazareth after he had been resurrected from the dead. That's why Luke says in book one, In his introduction, making it very explicit, he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, it seemed, or sorry, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. You see what Luke is saying? I've talked to the eyewitnesses. I've gathered the sources. I've spoken to critics and skeptics. I've weighed the evidence. I've been following these things closely for some time now. I've been looking at all of these things as a historian. This is what really happened. Jesus was crucified. He was dead. He was buried, descended into the pit of death, and then he rose again from the dead. And as an exclamation point, the whole enchilada, he says, verse 2, Acts Chapter 1, he says, Jesus also was taken up, meaning he ascended into heaven, he was taken into heaven, and he now currently reigns as king and lord over all creation and his church. Thank you. Just look back, Theophilus. You just got to look back. Jesus isn't in the realm of myth. It's not good for me not necessarily for you. No, it's a level of certainty about Jesus. He's the king of heaven and earth. Just look back. But that's not all. Realize this is an introduction to the book of Acts. What Luke also does is he says, Theophilus, you can have certainty. Not that Jesus merely accomplished things in the past. You see that Acts chapter one, right? He says in the first book, Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. He is going to continue his work. Book two recounts all that King Jesus continues to do and teach. Don't just look back for certainty, Theophilus. You can also look forward as well. Remember what Jesus said? Remember what he said is coming? Verse four, between Jesus' resurrection and ascension, he said this, While staying with them, talking about the apostles, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That day is coming. 
Look forward. That day is coming, Theophilus. A day is coming when I, Jesus, will ascend into heaven. I will pour out my Holy Spirit upon you. And it's what's been promised by the Father throughout the Scriptures. Just look at the Old Testament, a cursory look, and you see prophets foretold this day when the King would pour out His Spirit. Isaiah talked about it. Isaiah put it this way. He said, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high. And the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field, and the effects of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. Joel talked about it. Joel the prophet spoke of this day that Jesus spoke about. He made it clear. He said, and it shall come to pass afterward. This is Joel's way of saying, look forward. It's coming. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. And it's by the work of God's spirit that we will be transferred from the kingdom of of man into the kingdom of God. That's what he means when he says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, that is the king of the kingdom of God, will be saved. Everybody spoke about this. It wasn't just Isaiah. It wasn't just Joel. It was Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Amos, and countless other prophets spoke of this day. Theophilus, look forward. That day's finally come and it's coming. The work of Jesus, what he began to do, he's going to continue it now when he baptizes the apostles with his Holy Spirit. And not many days from now, the kingdom of God will spread beyond this meager group of Christians huddled in fear and temerity. It's going to spread beyond Jerusalem. It's going to spread beyond Judea. It's going to spread beyond Samaria. It's going to go beyond the ancient Near East as his apostles are empowered by God's Spirit and they preach the kingdom of God, calling citizens of the kingdom of man out of darkness and into God's marvelous light. They'll continue to proclaim a crucified Jesus who loves the world. They will continue to preach a resurrected king who will not stop loving. The king who will not stop until his kingdom comes in full, until his kingdom comes and his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. It is certain, Theophilus. Again, that's borne out statistically. You realize in the year 33 AD, there were 120 Christians. By the year 200, 1.4% of the population of the Roman Empire was Christian. That might not seem a lot, but believe it or not, that's a 40% growth rate year over year over year for 200 years. I guarantee if you got that rate of return at Charles Schwab, you'd take it. (laughs) By the year 315, close to 20% of the population was Christian. And today, over 2.6 billion People bow the knee to Jesus and confess that he is Lord and King. The kingdom of God, Jesus' work, is not just in the past. No, it continues to this day and nothing can stop it. Nothing can hinder the kingdom of God. No form of persecution, no attempt to stop the gospel, no resistance or hindrance to the message of the apostles. Nothing can stop the reign and rule of King Jesus.
His kingdom will spread beyond Jerusalem until the whole earth is filled with his glory. You know, a lot of early observers of Christianity, they were baffled at how this small group of riffraff Middle Eastern men and women gained so much momentum that they almost abolished paganism in the ancient world. And one commentator observed that it doesn't matter how much you persecute Christians, it doesn't matter how much legislation you pass against Christians, it doesn't matter how much you tell them to stop preaching and teaching and stop loving, it continues to spread. So he said, when it comes to Christianity, I think of it like a nail. The harder you hit it, the deeper it goes. It's because it can't be stopped. Because King Jesus is the one orchestrating it. And you might say, but wait, isn't Christianity on the decline? Isn't Christianity on the decline throughout the world? And actually, no, it's not. Understand this, friends. The Christianity that is in decline throughout the world is a Jesus who gave up on the, or is a Christianity that gave up on the Jesus that Luke and Theophilus believed in a long time ago. The Christianity that is in decline is the Christianity that says, yeah, we believe in Jesus, but it isn't a Jesus who was crucified for our sins by bearing the holy wrath of God in our place on the cross. The Christianity that's in decline is a Christianity that believes in a Jesus that was not literally resurrected from the dead or literally ascended into heaven. It isn't a Jesus who pours out his spirit and brings people from spiritual death into spiritual life. It isn't a Jesus who will certainly come again to judge the living and the dead. No, no, no. The the Christianity that's on decline is the Christianity that gave up on that Jesus a long, long time ago. It's a Christianity that believes in Jesus, the great moral teacher, who's good for me, but not necessarily for you. It's the Christianity that believes Jesus lies in the realm of myth and religious sentimentality, not the one who reigns and rules over all things. It's the Jesus who taught the universal fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of men, and it just warms your heart. It's the Christianity that believes in Jesus, not the way, the truth, and the life, but the Christianity, the Jesus. That's a way. That's a way. You can try them out sometime. I'm not going to force you. I'm not going to teach you about it. And it's my way. I really find meaning in it. You don't have to find meaning in it. That's okay. It's a way. And you can try it out sometime when you get around to it. No, it's Jesus, a truth. A truth for me, but not for you. It's Jesus, a life, sure. Yeah, kind of spiritual life that you feel around the holidays. It's a Christianity rooted in nothing other than the philosophies and ideas of the kingdom of man. That's the Christianity that's on the decline not the Christianity of King Jesus, dead, buried, resurrected, ascended, and reigning and ruling as we speak. That Christianity is not on decline. Jesus, the King, continues to reign and rule in heaven, and he is pouring out his spirit upon his people, and his kingdom will come, and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that kingdom will have no end. My daughter, McLean, as we were riding in the car the other day, we, we listened to 850K away for just about two minutes in our drive, so I can hear some of the news. And on this particular day, they were talking about the war in Ukraine, where Russian military had 
bombed a marketplace of innocent civilians. They talked about the wildfires that were spreading throughout Maui. For some reason on this day, they were talking about persecuted Christians in Burkina Faso. And I could tell my six-year-old daughter is feeling overwhelmed by this, that just the darkness in the world. And then she said to me, Dad, what if the bad guys win and take over? So I comforted her with the words of Paul. Remember Paul, who taught Luke, who is now teaching Theophilus? I told her these words from the pen of Paul, who said, In Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, that word of certainty, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, King Jesus, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. I'm doing this as I'm driving, reading my Bible, by the way. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. The kingdom of God, which will come, guaranteed by the Spirit poured into our hearts now through belief in the risen and ascended Lord Jesus. The bad guys will not win. Darkness will not succeed. And his kingdom will come. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Can I get an amen? amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we, we praise and thank you, man, that you so love the world, that you gave us your only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish along with the kingdom of man, but will have everlasting life in the kingdom of God with King Jesus. And Father, as we look back on the work of your Son, Jesus, what he accomplished, we pray you would give us certainty. We pray that you would help us to grow in conviction that your son, Jesus, is indeed the way, the truth, and the life. And through his death, his burial, his resurrection, we have eternal life and forgiveness of sins. And Father, help us look forward. Grow us in the conviction that your kingdom will come and it will be done. And your reign and rule will be on earth as it is in heaven. You give us your spirit as a guarantee of that day. And Father, lastly, we ask, would you give us firm confidence that darkness, sin, death, and evil will not win. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, eternal God, we thank you for these things, that they are true and that they are certain. And we pray this in the name of King Jesus, our Savior, the only true King. Amen.